0: Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. When you think about the history of witchcraft, I'll bet that bewitched cars, mail-order charms and police investigations don't immediately spring to mind. But these are all things that the University of Bristol historian Dr. Will Pooley has uncovered in his research into witchcraft in France, looking at the period from the French Revolution to the Second World War. I spoke to Will to find out more. Thank you very much for joining me today. I really wanted to speak to you about your research, firstly because you look at witchcraft, which is always interesting. But I think more intriguingly, you look at witchcraft in France in a much later period than we might usually be talking about witchcraft in histories, from um, the French Revolution right up to the Second World War. So how widespread were witchcraft beliefs in this period?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that witchcraft beliefs are a lot more common in that period than than people tend to assume. So um, there are definitely, in particular, there there are parts of France where um, a belief in witchcraft seems to be pretty much the norm for people living in communities. So in particular, in parts of Western and Northern France, um, anthropologists and folklorists who went out there in the kind of, you know, starting in the late 19th century, but into the 20th century, would quite often say things like, everybody here still believes in witches. That's the kind of thing they'd say.
0: We think of this as the era of the Enlightenment and beyond, in which... Supernatural beliefs were were thrown in the bin, really, but your research is showing that that wasn't necessarily the case at all.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it's really worth saying that this is something that a lot of historians um, have been interested in in lots of different parts um, of Europe and North America. There's, there's, there's lots of really good work on this, actually, um, on the United Kingdom um, uh, and Great Britain. But there wasn't that one book on France which looked at this in detail. And I think that is really interesting because, as you say, particularly with France, um, the French themselves at the time have a very kind of self-conscious self-image often of being a country um, that... Yeah, that leads the Enlightenment, that uh, criticises superstition, um, and you know that doesn't, doesn't deal with all of this kind of outdated, outmoded um, form of belief. And they also, of course, um, a lot of French people at the time have this sense of themselves as a very Catholic uh, nation, um, and the Catholic Church itself uh, is engaged in a very difficult, shall we say, a very difficult battle with, with what they see as unorthodox beliefs, because they don't want to tell people that, Everything they believe in is nonsense because they they feel that they're at risk of kind of driving people away from the church. But at the same time, they do want to they do want to uh, try and put an end to what they see as kind of some of the some of the less uh, credible aspects of the, of this kind of belief system.
0: So, what forms did these beliefs take in this time? Were they the same as they always had been in the medieval and early modern era, or had they adapted and evolved?
2: Yeah, I think so. That's a really interesting and important question, um, and I think. You know, in a sense, there are, there are two answers to that. There is an amazing continuity in some of these beliefs. So I found about a thousand cases that make it to court or investigation by the police um, across a kind of 140 year period. And in a lot of those cases, people are still concerned about the same things that they talk about in the early modern witch trials. So there is lots of stuff about um, cows whose milk dries up. There's lots of stuff about farm animals uh, being targeted by mysterious illnesses. And there's lots of stuff around pregnancy and childbirth uh, and young children, which is very will be very familiar, actually, to a lot of people who know the longer history of witchcraft. But of course, then the kind of second part of the question is that things really do change. And of course, that's one of the things that makes the topic interesting in a sense one of the reasons i think that that you know we we still find um such lively witchcraft beliefs right into the modern period is that they they adapt to the period so um in the 19th century when people are talking about their perception of being bewitched. They start to talk about themselves, their bodies as being electrified, um, or they or they borrow terms from contemporary medicine um, and uh, and in particular from medicine that's interested in the mind. So a lot of people who um, claim to be bewitched notice it first as a kind of nervous disposition, um, and a lot of people when they're talking about nervousness, they will then link that to the possibility of being bewitched. So there are definitely changes. And of course, the change which always I think people always enjoy is that witchcraft strikes those things that we value most in our lives. Um, and in the 19th century and then into the 20th century, you get more and more examples of people having things like bewitched... Um, technologies. So um, I've got a really nice case from the 1930s um, which concerned a bewitched car um, and then it led to this this court case where people were arguing over whether the car was really bewitched.
0: Well we're going to have to ask you about the bewitched car later but before we do earlier you mentioned police and in my mind police and witchcraft don't really go together in the same conversation. So what was essentially the legal status of witchcraft at this time? Did it exist as a legal entity?
2: Yeah that's a really important question. So No, it absolutely doesn't exist um, as something that the the legal system recognises. In fact, France is a little unusual um, compared to some other European countries. Witchcroft was decriminalised. A bit earlier than in most places. So, 1682, um, there was a change in the law to essentially remove witchcraft as a crime in, in any way. And then, about a hundred years later, with the French Revolution, the French revolutionaries basically threw out the old law code, um, and the new law code that they brought in was deliberately um, secular. So, it had no; it, it excluded all references to Catholicism and excluded, um, you know, anything that had that touched on these kind of issues that might be considered crimes connected to, to faith and belief. But, yeah, you know, that doesn't mean, of course, so, so I'm finding lots of these cases. Why am I finding lots of cases? Well, the problem is, of course, that people commit crimes that are crimes in their own right because, of, because they're involved in a witchcraft dispute. The three really common ways they do that are they, they might attack someone who they think is a witch, um, and there are lots of cases of assault, and even, I think... In my latest count, about 70 cases I know of where witches, people who are accused of witchcraft were murdered. Um, That's the first really common way that these cases end up in court. And then the second is that um, you get all sorts of people who offer to help other people with witchcraft um, afflictions. And they then find themselves being prosecuted for fraud or for Ill- illegal medical practice because, um, you know, they're, pl- they're promising to help someone with something that the state recognizes as being a health condition. Um, and, you know, they're taking money, even though they're not a doctor, um, to help them. And then the third uh, type of case that I've... I mean, it's not, it's not as, it's nowhere near as many cases as those other two, but I think they're very interesting, is that it's, um, it's slanderous to call someone a witch. So if you call someone a witch in front of witnesses, then uh, they can take you to court. And I think, I believe that that is still the case in the French law today. So
0: where are you finding the evidence for these cases?
2: So I started, um, as a lot of um, historians who have, who've done similar stuff uh, have done, I started with newspapers, Um, And the French newspapers, as with the British newspapers now, a lot of them have been digitised. It makes it very easy to search for words that are relevant to witchcraft. Um, And then those newspaper accounts lead me on to um, police investigations sometimes, but most often trials. So the trials are a really good paper trail in terms of, you know, talking to lots of witnesses and finding out what happened in these specific disputes. Um, Because one of the problems honestly with this is that the newspaper accounts often get things wrong they're very they you know they, they don't tend to understand what's yeah they don't really understand what's going on uh, but the trial records then often bring a lot more clarity
0: at least 50 of the cases that you you've uncovered are of murder trials that revolved around witchcraft what can you tell us about some of those
2: Yeah I mean they're really obviously they're often very sad cases to read and they're very they're very divisive in the communities where they take place. Well I say they're very divisive mostly they're very divisive what ends up happening is you often get members of the same family testifying against um, you know murder accused Um, but there is I can think of one example actually there are examples where they weren't divisive so there was a case where a a witch um, in the Loire was, um, well, someone who was suspected of witchcraft was murdered. And there was never a trial because not a single person in the village was willing to talk to the authorities about it. Um, but in general, they are they are extremely divisive. So um, a very famous, well, I mean, I, I don't think many people have heard of it today, but there was a case that was very famous at the time in, um, in 1886, where a sister and her two brothers murdered their own mother. And it wasn't It wasn't just about whether she was a witch or not, it was connected to all sorts of issues of inheritance, but um, to give you an idea of how divisive it was, the grandchildren of the murder victim, and so the, the daughter, the kind of six-year-old daughter of, of the woman who was accused of murder, was called as a witness in the trial, which at the time was quite unusual. You don't normally accept children's evidence, but there's lots of newspaper reporting around this very kind of moving evidence given by the small child. Uh, and then uh, her mother was guillotined and she was the last woman guillotined in France until the Vichy regime reintroduced capital punishment
0: so most of the the murder trials it was the victim that was the suspected witch rather than the murderer
2: yes absolutely that's right so it's definitely although not always so i i mean there is a there's a large there's a large minority of cases where um people use witchcraft as one form of violence among others and very often those people will end up poisoning someone who they've also tried to bewitch, or maybe they've also tried to attack them, you know, physically. But mostly, yes, mostly the people who are accused of witchcraft um, are the victims. And I, 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 sometimes slip, but I've been trying to be careful to say suspected witches because, of course, um, in most of these cases, we wouldn't necessarily believe that the person who's being accused of witchcraft really ever did any witchcraft.
0: Obviously, you're looking at a, a really broad span of time here, and France was vastly different from the revolution up until the Second World War, but primarily what kind of communities are you looking at here are you looking at rural communities or or urban communities
2: yeah that's a really good question as well so I think that it it is definitely the case that most of these cases take place in rural communities Um, and I've got lots of material on that and there's you know there are clear links between actually I think between farming honestly and fears of witchcraft so um, you know witchcraft a lot of it is about um, a kind of family identity that is that is partly identified with the farm and with animals and with crops, and it all seems to be tied in together to that to those kind of things. But at the same time, I would say that it's not it is not just those agricultural communities. So there are some really interesting. Um, examples where uh, the cases are more urban. One of my favourites, I, I, I included it in a piece I published a few years ago, was about a road mender. And um, like many road menders, you know, he, he had to move around the country for work. And, and he was so he'd moved to Paris to take this work. And while he was there, um, he was having a lot of problems in his job and his tools kept disappearing. Um, and in the end, he figured out that one of his coworkers had bewitched him um, and he assaulted him. So he ends up in court in Paris and the judge says to him, you know, what on earth are you talking about? What, you know, what's going on here? And he said, oh, well, my coworkers bewitched me. And the judge says, that's nonsense, that's nonsense. And the final thing that this that the guy says before the trial ended was he said, oh, well, I'm going to go back to the countryside because there are fewer witches there. So I just think it's, a kind of, it's an interesting comment on how people, how people carry that belief with them and what kind of attitudes they have. There are definitely, and there are definitely lots of urban communities where witchcraft uh, disputes kind of break out. So I've, I've been particularly interested in these shopkeepers in Marseille who have a kind of running witchcraft dispute in the 1870s.
0: What can you tell us about that?
2: well it's very confusing for a start <laughs> so <laughs> well, I really I do like that example but it, it it's like there are several other examples like this as well um, that rather than it just being one case you know where someone attacked someone else these cases sometimes run for 30 or 40 years um, and it then becomes very difficult to disentangle who was the aggressor um, and who and who they who the people involved thought was doing the magical aggression, should we say. So they, they, they tend to, um, I've got quite a few spreadsheets where I'm trying to keep track of all the different names and put people together.
0: Is that the sense of um, the heart of a lot of these cases, that it's about neighbourly tensions or disputes, community disputes? Could you, for example, plot that in times of national stress or national crisis, so the revolution, the Second World War, that you see a boom in these cases? Although is that not really the case?
2: So it's really, it's really, really hard to to track a kind of pattern of cases getting more extreme um, in periods like that that you've. um, And but I think there are a few things going on there. The first thing to say is that the court system doesn't tend to uh, doesn't tend to function um, very well. Obviously, it didn't function very well during the early years of the revolution, and then during the revolution itself, it was concerned with a whole. Um, different set of crimes Um, and the same thing happens during the wars. So I do have cases from the first world war, which would be a really good example, but actually the number of cases that make it to court during the first world war suddenly drops off quite a lot. So I think, I think the problem is it's a, there is a problem of sources there. There might've been a lot of witchcraft disputes happening, but maybe, maybe they just weren't making it to court. I mean, I think the other thing to say is that it seems it's very hard to track the kind of disputes back to some kind of back to a set of causes Like that, The only example I do know of, which I find interesting but haven't been able to prove or kind of work out what's going on exactly yet, is in the 1830s. The 1830s were a period um, of, there were several kind of um, agricultural disasters, there was food shortages, it was a difficult period for many people living in the countryside, and there was, there was a lot of witchcraft, um, a lot of very violent witchcraft disputes in the 1830s. Um, A lot of witches were burned, there's a whole series of witch burnings in the south of France.
0: And what can it tell us about other anxieties of the age? So for example, I know race and colonialism is something that potentially comes into it.
2: Oh, absolutely. So there is definitely the further you get towards the end of the 19th century and then into the 20th century, these disputes get overlaid um, with a lot of concerns about empire, colonialism, like you're saying, and race. And I think that does, it partly comes from the newspapers. So the example I've often talked about, um, which is a really depressing example, is the first the first black deputy to the National Assembly since the 1790s um, is a, a deputy from Guadeloupe um, called Egesi Legitimus, and he's a socialist politician. But when he comes to Paris to take up his um, seat in the National Assembly, several of the um, French newspapers run a kind of smear campaign, which uh, accuses him of being connected to witchcraft practices um, back in Guadeloupe. And obviously there's no, I mean, I think there's, There's absolutely no evidence that that is what was going on. But it's a very clear kind of effort to, to, yeah, to put him in a box with kind of primitive superstitious belief systems. um, And that's the way the newspapers are using it.
0: So I guess it's harking back to that idea of witchcraft as slander that you mentioned at the start.
2: Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of the other things that makes him an interesting example is most of the people who I study who are accused of witchcraft never really get to speak in their own defence, but he was a very, you know, he was an articulate politician and he wrote a front-page editorial kind of refuting all these claims, which is really brilliant.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: This whole kind of developing mass, cons- you know, consumerist uh, magical culture, which I think, you know, is the end. Am- it's the kind of forerunner of what we see now. I don't know if you're familiar with kind of insta-witches and, and people selling magical materials online. Um, so it's, you know, it's a huge industry now.
3: We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting... Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelphelp.com slash history extra.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
0: I wanted to return to something that you mentioned earlier, but in a bit more detail. Of course, you you mentioned the bewitched car and what that can tell us about um, concerns and anxieties about technology. So I wonder if you could just tell us a bit more about that, because they, to me, seem antithetical. You know, witchcraft seems old fashioned and technology is obviously modern, but they go hand in hand here.
2: Yeah, I think they definitely do. Um, And it's a point, actually, there are a lot of historians, so a lot of historians of spiritualism have been really interested in this question, for instance, because, um, you know, when the telegraph is becoming a more and more uh, prevalent and important technology... Lots of people who are interested in spiritualism actually see spiritualism in the telegraph, for instance, as analogous. So there's there's a kind of long tradition building across the 19th century of technology and supernatural beliefs kind of feeding one another and reinforcing one another in ways that we find surprising.
0: And just to just to kind of clarify that, I guess it's because it's messages from somewhere that we can't see. Right. That's the connection there.
2: Exactly yeah messages from somewhere we can't see and this sense of how are those messages being transmitted yeah it's it's all those things and i and you know the other example which of course many people will be familiar with is spirit photography so you know we you might think that from its from its birth photography has this kind of status as a very you know an objective description of material reality but actually you know very early on in the development of photography people become interested in the way that photographs might capture images of something that we weren't able to perceive by the naked eye, such as um, Spirits of the Departed. Um, and that's a tradition that um, I think those kind of interests really overlap with um, how a lot of people blend their interest in technology with an interest in witchcraft or a fear of witchcraft so I know of one case from the 1920s, which is a case I've worked on a lot, where um, when they're dis- when the victims of the witchcraft in the case are describing what it felt like, they, they're they basically talking about it as if it had turned their bedroom into a cinema with images projected onto the wall and it had sound effects of uh, trains uh, and aeroplanes. And it's all very, it, it feels very much that that's what it's about. It's about a kind of technologized sense of what the supernatural is.
0: You mentioned their spiritualism um, and... I wondered how this played into those themes as well. So obviously you have the rise of spiritualism, which a lot of people tie in with the First World War and the Victorian era, and also occultism. So how did witchcraft connect to those ideas at the time?
2: Yeah, this is actually, there's a really interesting set of questions, I think, here, and it's still an area... I haven't. I haven't done a lot of work on this, but I think there's a there's room for other historians to to be interested in this because a lot of those so a lot of the writers who are kind of associated with the modern occult movement in France, uh, for instance, are really interested in in witchcraft. You know, they when they find examples in the newspaper of witchcraft cases in villages, they they want to tie those kind of witchcraft disputes to their own developing ideas about the occult powers of the universe. And I definitely do think there are links there. I think with spiritualism, it's a little, it's a little bit different. I mean, there is definitely an overlap in the sense that there's a kind of, there are all sorts of categories that easily get confused. So spiritualism and then haunted houses and then bewitchment do tend To get a little bit muddled, so there are sometimes there will be people who think, "Oh, I might be bewitched," but spiritualists become interested in it and say, "Oh, maybe actually you're being contacted by the dead." But in general, it's a little. I think it's a little bit more separate than the the modern occultists really are interested in witchcraft for itself.
0: And what did the church have to say about all of this?
2: I think it would be fair to say that the church had as little as it possibly could to say about it. That was their main strategy. Was when it comes to witchcraft in particular, I think the idea was. Try not to talk too publicly about it. So that's a kind of gen- a general official strategy on, on behalf of, say, you know, the kind of the church as an institution, the Catholic Church. But the problem is, of course, that lots of the people who are um, who become priests. Uh, are from similar backgrounds to the people who are involved in witchcraft disputes. And there is abundant evidence uh, from the cases that I've looked at in this period. And in fact, from well into the 20th century, that lots of priests are engaging in frank conversations with their parishioners about the reality of witchcraft and that they're becoming involved in witchcraft disputes uh, very often. Because the most common, you know, your, your authority to help you if you really think you're bewitched is to go to your priest and say, can you do something about this? as you know puts priests and other clerics in an interesting position the 1920s case i've already talked about one of the things that happens there is um, the victims of the witchcraft they go to see these monks at a local monastery and the monks sell them a whole range of religious paraphernalia to help them with their bewitchment and then when it makes when the case makes it to court, its court as a murder case the monks say, "Oh, we don't, we don't know what you're talking about. That's nothing to do with us. We deny all knowledge of witchcraft. We, we never talked to him about witchcraft." And of course, I think you know the uh, skeptical historian probably looks at it and says, "It seems very likely that they they did engage in a conversation with him about witchcraft, but then they don't. They they wouldn't admit it in court."
0: Something else that I wanted to ask you about is is the connection to fields that were emerging, such as um, psychology and ideas about the power of the mind. How did witchcraft
2: tie in with that? Yeah, so I, I think again this is a really interesting area because, you know, it's one of those things that a lot of people will find surprising perhaps that people who are who are developing these new theories of the mind were very interested um in supernatural phenomena such as witchcraft um and some of these cases. There's there's a definite there are definite attempts by some of the better known medical authorities in the kind of late 19th century to start to like build a system that can explain what's really going on in these cases. And it's not, it's not just for them about can we explain what the delusions that these people are suffering from might be? I think it is generally, genuinely a sense that there might be powers of the mind that we don't fully understand yet. And that they might be playing a role um, in these cases So one um, example that I've looked at, a confusing and distressing example, like many of them, but there's a, it's a case from 1890 where a a woman killed her newborn uh, child immediately after she gave birth to it. And when she was confronted with this, um, it turned out the backstory had to do with the father of the child was someone who she believed to have occult powers and who she believed controlled her behavior. The case was repeatedly postponed in order to get expert uh, opinion on what exactly had happened, uh, in the case. And in fact, some of the experts who were called in to talk, talk about the case, they were fairly convinced that he could control her mind, um, using, uh, you know, a form of hypnosis. So she was, she was supposedly hysterically suggestible and he had kind of hip, hypnotized her into doing, into killing her child. And the, I think the thing that's interesting about that kind of precedent is that 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 precedent goes on to be used in other cases. So there are several other cases in the following years where women uh, who had killed their own children more or less successfully argued they'd been hypnotised by a man.
0: It's extraordinary stuff you're uncovering there. Something that I was surprised to learn um, from your research is that around two-thirds of those who were suspected of being witches were men. What do you think is behind that?
2: It's so hard to answer why why it would be that that more men are thought to be witches in this in this period in modern France uh, than women. I think the first thing to say is that the association that we have with with women and witchcraft that is something that exists that has existed in a lot of cultures, um, you know, European cultures, but also other cultures around the world. There, there seems to be a strong association between um, harmful magic and women. But it's never been total. And, you know, during the period of the early modern witch hunts in Europe, there were whole regions of Europe. Switzerland is the obvious example, but also Normandy, which, of course, is part of modern modern France, where male witches always dominated. So it's never been a it's never been a kind of one to one fit, that kind of association between women and witchcraft. Why it would be that men are more associated with witchcraft in the materials I look at is really hard to answer. I, I suspect there are a few things going on. The first is that these are these are court cases dealing with crimes that aren't witchcraft itself. And we know from uh, lots of other evidence that men are more likely to be taken to court in these cases. So it may be that there are lots of cases involving women that just, they never make it to court. I think the other things to say are that There is this long-standing association with Norman male witches, and a lot of the cases in my uh, research are from that region. The other... I mean, it's not. That's not the only region of France, in fact, where male witches predominate. Almost all of northern the northern part of France, uh, male witches predominate, and it's only in southern France, in my period, where there are more female witches than male witches. There are lots of other things I could say about it. It gets more and more complicated and, and less and less plausible, perhaps. But one thing I've I've talked about before is, or I've written about before, is the possibility that it has to do with inheritance disputes, because the French uh, have a very strict. Um, and patriarchal in fact system of inheritance introduced at the beginning of the 19th century and one thing that that creates is a lot of tension between male brothers and cousins um, and things like that and then that may lie behind some of it.
0: Obviously you're working on this for a new book but you have looked at, at the broader theme of folklore um, in France so what are the kind of beliefs around and about at this time?
2: Yeah, I've um so in that in my first book I I did a I did a whole chapter on werewolves, which is really fun. Uh there's lots of yeah, I mean so there's lots of other folklore material that uh, that I've been interested in. I mean, in that first book in particular, I was interested in how this kind of stuff can help a historian to understand how people thought about their bodies. Because I think I I think as historians, we've we've got quite good over the last, you know, last generation at thinking about the fact that people in the past experienced their bodies differently and they use their bodies very differently. But when we do that, we're very often talking about, you know, elites, we're very often talking about rich people and people who write their own ideas down. Folklore for me was a way to kind of look at, okay, so what are normal people in the countryside, if you like, what do they think about their body? And one way to kind of think about that, I suppose, was to think about funny stories they tell, like stories about werewolves, you know, how does this help us understand how they see their bodies?
0: Can you see a connection there between witchcraft and how people would think about their bodies, how ideas of witches would influence that?
2: Oh, absolutely. I've In fact, I'm meant to be giving a conference paper on this very topic in a few weeks time. So yeah, no, absolutely. And I do think some of those things we were talking about a few minutes ago about the kind of an increasing use of languages of electricity an increasing interest in kind of languages of the mind. So people describing their own feelings uh, in terms of uh, psychiatric terminology, I think those are, those are new things in how people thought about their bodies in that period. So that's definitely, that's the kind of thing that I find interesting about it.
0: Obviously, you've shared loads of fascinating stories and cases that you've come across, but I wonder if there are any that we haven't discussed that you think people might find intriguing. Uh,
2: there was a, a magician named Jean-Maurice Talazac. Um, and he actually, his career, he started out in the circus. Um, But I came across him because uh, in 1916, he was prosecuted. uh, So during the First World War, he was prosecuted because he'd set up this actually really rather impressive international mail order magic kind of catalogue. And he was selling all sorts of... um, Quite odd magical paraphernalia to people all around the world. So particularly South America, I found a lot of letters um, from South America, um, but all across Europe, Italy, France, and parts, lots of parts of the British Empire as well. In fact, um, uh, and he's uh, he he was a. He was a kind of brazen, you know, he was doing this out in the open in a sense, even though it was he was clearly promising things that were illegal. And um, I think the authorities were particularly worried about it in the context of the First World War. This was someone who's kind of giving people false hope. Um, and in particular, he was making a lot of money from uh, selling charms and amulets to women whose husbands had disappeared during the war and things like that, which, of course, is not really very, uh, very tasteful, I suppose.
0: So he was prosecuted for fraud.
2: That's right, um, because the the kinds of things that his... He was saying, you know, one of the items he sold was a radioactive pen, and he said, you know, pay me 30 francs for this radioactive pen, which I'll send you in the post, and anything you write with the pen will come true. Um, you know, he was similarly selling multicoloured paper, so you could buy different coloured paper to have, which would have different kind of magical effects. I mean, he's quite, you know, he's quite an interesting example in the sense that he, because he was prosecuted, we get to see this whole kind of developing mass cons, you know, consumerist uh, magical culture, which I think you know, is, the, is the kind of forerunner of what we see now. I don't know if you're familiar with kind of insta-witches and, and people selling magical materials online. Um, so it's, you know, it's a huge industry now.
0: So finally, I, I just wanted to ask you what you think all of this tells us about French society more widely between the revolution and the world wars.
2: I've been writing a lot recently about whether we should um whether we should talk about these kind of phenomena as beliefs, uh, and I increasingly think that describing them as beliefs is not very helpful because we tend to think uh, oh, people believed in witchcraft. We tend to assume that means they literally thought that witchcraft was possible. And I'm increasingly thinking that actually it's not really a belief it's um it's something closer to a doubt, so in the sense it's something that you worry could be true. So even though you know deep down it can't be true, you worry that it could be true. Now, I think the importance of that for like understanding uh, French culture during this period is I'm really interested in that kind of, yeah, that sense of uncertainty. Like I've, when we as historians look back on a period like this, we tend to see the battle lines as very distinct. So in particular, this is a period we associate with a war between the church and the state, you know, and a kind of running war in France between a state that, sometimes was trying to secularize and then at other points kind of returned to having a kind of heavier Catholic influence. And the church in response was trying to kind of win a kind of culture war, if you like, in terms of, you know, asserting their moral, their right to play a moral role in the kind of public life of the nation. And, you know, we could say we could say very similar things about a lot of the scientific debates that emerged in that period. But one of the things that's interesting about witchcraft from those points of views is all of this mixing we've been talking about. It shows that ordinary people, when they're trying to work through those ideas on their own terms. They're often actually mixing stuff together that we don't think belongs together. They're very uncertain about it. It gives a hesitancy back to this history, which I think sometimes we lose when we see it as a kind of contrast between very firmly set ideas.
0: If people want to find out more about this, where can they, where can they go?
2: So there are some there are some really great books out there. There's It's harder to find stuff on the French material um, on the French historical material that I'm interested in. but in terms of the British cases, um, the historian Owen Davies has written some wonderful books, like several wonderful books about this now. And more recently, actually, there was a book by Thomas Waters um, called Cursed Britain, which covers a lot of this material. Lovely details, really, really great book. I strongly recommend it. If you are interested in the French examples, there's also a very famous book, which I remember uh, one of my, um, well, my PhD supervisor, actually, when I was first starting out, said to me, it's a very weird book. And it is a very weird book called... Uh, Deadly Words which is by Jeanne Favre-Sada that's the English translation she was an anthropologist and she went and lived in Normandy in the late 1960s and she became involved in witchcraft disputes um, and she actually ended up becoming a kind of unwitcher as part of her anthropological work it's a wonderful book and uh, kind of scary and very odd but it's it's great that
0: was Dr Will Pooley. He's currently working on a book that pulls together all of this research. That's called Witchcraft in Modern France 1790-1940 to 1940, and is set to be published later this year. If you're interested in more on witchcraft in the supernatural, then you might enjoy our new series on the Salem Witch Trials, which we've released on our premium subscription feed on Apple Podcasts. Just search for History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts to find out more. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Conley.
1: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control?
2: The Western world was asleep.